My name is Austin. I'm a fourth-year senior here, and I'll be doing the reading for tonight. <laughs> so Judges 3, verses 12 through 30. So once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies, and then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up by a rescuer to save them. His name was Ayud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ayud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So Ayud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. After delivering the payment, Ayud started home with those who had helped carry the tribute. But when Ayud reached the stone idols near Gigal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet, and he sent them all out of the room. Ayud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room, and Ayud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ayud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ayud did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Uh, side note, in the English Standard Version, the translation says, and the dung fell. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> then Ayud closed and locked the doors of the room and escaped down the latrine. After Ayud was gone, the king's servants returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room, so they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, Ayud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Sarah. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ayud sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. So they followed him, and the Israelites took control of the shallow crossing of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80, 80 years. So this particular passage tonight that Austin read, we're going to look at three things in it. Unlikely deliverance, unclothed emperors, and an unflinching savior. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, come and be with us, we pray. Uh, You are so willing, so compassionate to come and be with your people and to come and open the eyes of those who cannot see you those who do not have hearts to believe. You are so willing. History has proven that out. Scripture has proven that out. And so we appeal to your character as a savior, your character as a king, to come and be those things in our midst tonight for our sake and for yours. Let your word be taught. Uh, Let us respond the way you intended your people to respond to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of your word, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, buckle up, because this is about to get weird. I've had this thought in my head a long time, and preparing for this passage, it came back to my mind, and I'm convinced of it. 
I think the most vulnerable moment of your day is when you're sitting on the toilet, doing your business, making boom boom, seeing a man about a dog. That is your most vulnerable moment of your day. It has to be. Uh, Imagine the thing. You've got decisions to make. If an attacker were to come upon you in that moment, you've got options, you've got decisions, and you've got to make them lightning fast. One option, one decision that you could make is, do you go the clean, pretty way, you finish up, you wipe, and you get up to attack your attacker? Do you kind of just take one for the team, you get up without any of that? For the emergency circumstances, you set off the normal routine, and you just get up and you fight? Or, if you remember this, you go old-school Jurassic Park mode, and you just sit there in frozen terror as a velociraptor comes and eats you like a popsicle. There's decisions to make in that moment. These are questions that I think we now have biblical warrant for you to ask. (laughs) These are those existential questions that you should stay up till three in the morning wrestling with in life. And we have it right here in the Bible to justify that conversation. Now, look, seriously, I have a reason for starting in this particular place because I want to beg the question. I want to raise it in your mind. I want to push home the point that Austin started to raise of why in the world is this passage in your Bible? And how in the world could it be relevant and timely in our lives tonight? And to up the ante, is this the passage Jesus was thinking of in Luke 24 when he said, all scripture testifies of me, points to me? Is this what Paul meant in his letters when he said that these things of old were written down for your encouragement? Is this written down for your encouragement? Is this like the prophets say, like the rain that goes forth and does not come back void? Does Judges 3 go out to you and not come back void? He pulled out whatever other version, uh, thanks for doing that, um, that you pulled out for one of the sentences. But I promise you, if you read this in the Hebrew, uh, this is the pre-kindergarten version of this story. Latrine. Uh, His bowels emptied. The Hebrew version is graphic and it rhymes and there's double entendre and there's wordplay and there's humor lines, laugh lines inserted throughout this passage. And when little Israelite boys and girls and their parents heard this story passed down through the ages and recounted, they would be bowled over in laughter and in national pride at how God toppled this chubby little king who had oppressed the Israelites for as long as most of you have been alive. It's intentional. The author wants you to laugh. The author wants you to get a little uncomfortable. And the author is drawing us into this kind of a locker room story. And he is sanctifying that place. He's sanctifying even the bathroom saying, that's where the redemptive work of God happens. I kid you not. That's where the gospel goes forward is even in toilets and kings who sit on them. That's why this passage is in your Bible and the three things I said earlier that we'll talk about in the next few minutes. We'll spend the next 30 minutes, I guess, answering that question of why is it in your Bible. But for now, remember where we've been the past couple of weeks to freshen us up for this particular account. Where have we been? Well, we've really been in the addictive cycle of Israel, not just God's people back then, but God's people today. This cycle One thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Coasting or drifting or distraction leads to just kind of full-blown blind idolatry, which leads to misery, emptiness, hollowness, not having an anchor in your life. 
which leads to distress, which leads to just uncle. I want it to end. God, what are you doing? Or God, come. God, help. Prayer, whatever. Some kind of a crying out, which in the book of Judges leads to deliverance, which just gives way to another season of drifting, coasting, idolatry, and misery. That's what we've been talking about the past couple of weeks uh, leading up to this. And that's actually how this particular story starts, too, in verse 12. Remember the first week we talked about being in relationship with God. He is holy. He is steady. He is true. And we are sinful. So being in relation, but he makes promises to sinful people like us, right? To wayward people. He, he makes covenantal vows to us. And to make a vow to someone is to chain yourself to them. Uh, in marriage, you know, they say, oh, the old ball and chain, talking about the husband or the wife, and it's kind of set in this negative connotation, like they're going to tie you down. That's exactly what a covenant does. It ties you down. It, it, is, it is a ball and a chain to that person. It is a ball and a chain. It does tie you down to the better you. God ties himself down to his people. He ties himself with a ball and chain, as it were, to his people. And so if you're in relationship with God, it's almost like there's this covenantal love, this promises that he's made to you is like a rubber band between you and him. He doesn't move. Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is holy. He is righteous. He has no need to change. He's perfect. He's love. We change by the hour. And so as we run, that rubber band stretches and stretches, and you start to existentially in your body, in your mind, in your soul, you start to feel the strain and the pull, and you start to wonder, when's his love going to run out? When's his patience going to snap? When's it all going to be over? And I'm going to piss him off one too many times or backslide one mile too far. When is it all going to be over? When's the rubber band going to snap because I stretched it too far And like we talked about that first week, it keeps stretching and stretching and stretching. And you begin to wonder, what in the world is this thing made of? Any natural material would have broken long ago. Well, that's what's been going on with the Israelites. It keeps repeatedly goes on with them. And God loves them enough and loves you enough to not ever allow you to be comfortable in your sin. If God loves you, he will engineer distress into your idolatry and into my running. A mark of his curse is being handed over to your own desires. A mark of of his curse is to give you what you want. And there is comfort. You experience comfort. You experience just pleasure in your self-destruction and in your death. But if God loves you, if he's after you, you will experience great strain and pull and fraying. And you will feel that pressure as he brings you back into himself And that's what goes on between 12 and 14. The Israelites run, run, run. God raises up Eglon. God gives Eglon, the king of the Moabites, power to oppress his people, to be the source of the pain that wakes them up. But it's unbelievable. 18 years under this evil, oppressive, tyrannical king's thumb, 18 years of being pillaged by this guy before they cry uncle. 18 years in a Moabite stranglehold before they say, God, deliver us. That's how old most of you are. That is a long time before saying uncle, before saying deliver us. Maybe they liked it a little bit more than we would think. Being in slavery, worshiping foreign gods, Turning your back on the true God. 
But God loves them enough that verse 15 comes around. But when the people of Israel called out to the Lord for help, that call finally came. And you don't anticipate what happens at the end of that sentence. That's nonsense. What makes sense is that they feel really bad. They're miserable. They're hitting rock bottom and they cry out. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is that God picks up the phone. That's not anticipated. It's not expected. Because it says right after that, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. Which means that God does not scrutinize their distress call. Think about this. If you call 911 and they pick up the phone and they say, 911, uh, how did you get into this emergency? And you say, uh, uh, I mean, I think my heart is clogged. I'm having a heart attack. And they say, well, is it genetics? Do you have a family lineage of heart problems? Or is it because you eat too many donuts and don't exercise? You're like, uh, I don't know, but I think I'm about to die. And you're in this back and forth between how did you get into the emergency that you're in? Do you think it's that way with God that you cry out in your distress, even distress of your own making, a misery that you yourself walked yourself right into? And you think when you send up that distress flare, God is there to scrutinize you and saying, not 911, what's your emergency? Stay right there, we're on our way. But you think he says, 911, how did you get into this? What did you do? I think a lot of us think like that. Because so much of our, the pits that we fall into, so much of the distress that we get, get into was caused by this guy. My lack of discipline. My laziness. My poor follow through. My wanting to be the center of the universe. My failed intentions. My not knowing how to manage my time better. And you hate yourself for this stuff, Right? And sometimes you begin to think that God hates you for it too. Uh, and, and we don't even cry out. There's a plague of silence in your bedroom and in your car and in your head. A plague of prayerlessness. We don't even pray anymore. We don't even cry out anymore because we think I got myself into this pit and God is waiting on me to get myself out of this pit before we re-engage, before we can get back on track. Because you know that this misery is a self-inflicted misery at least what you know this far in this passage and myriad other places in scripture is that God cares about your distress no matter what caused it or where it came from. He does not scrutinize distress calls. There may be a time later on when the emergency is over where as a wise and loving father, he puts an arm around you and he says, let's talk about this pattern. That's a conversation for later. Not up front. Have you ever read Psalm 107? It's a just bombardment of evidence of what I'm saying. If you think this is too good to be true. Psalm 107 is just instance after instance after instance. I'll just read two of them to you real quick. But Psalm 107 is a, is a song that someone wrote about calling 911 and 911 answered and came and delivered. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love, that covenantal love, that rubber band stretches forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom the Lord has redeemed from trouble. Verse 10, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Why? For they had rebelled against the words of God. A few verses later, some were fools through their own 
sinful ways. And so God bowed their hearts down with hard labor and they fell down with no one to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and God delivered them from their distress. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Yeah, he loves you enough to let you feel the pain of the path that you and I keep choosing. But he doesn't scrutinize your calls for help. He responds. He dispatches. Who in this particular uh, episode does he dispatch? Who does he dispatch? Not when Israel climbs out of the pit Israel got itself into, but when Israel simply cries out. God is not waiting on you to climb out of anything. Simply to cry out. Simply to direct your attention to the one in whom help is found. Who is that person here? It's Ehud. End of uh, verse 15, beginning of verse 16. His name, Ehud, son of Gera. That's the deliverer. It's an unlikely deliverer. It's not a person that you would expect. If you have a paper Bible with you, you can read the paragraph right before where Austin started reading, and you can read about the ideal deliverer, the savior, the rescuer, the hero that you totally expect, the Hollywood hero. Otniel is his name. And he's tall and he's attractive and he's strong and he's efficient and he makes quick work of the Lord's enemies. And the people have peace for 80 years. It is just amazing. And then this guy named Ehud, who apparently is not well known because he's introduced in detail as if you don't haven't heard of him before. He's introduced. Now, how is he introduced? How is he introduced in the passage? Uh, as a runt. As the run to the litter. If you were picking a kickball team, Ehud would be the last pick. There was nothing about this particular man who would scream, pick me, pick me. He's going to be a home run hitter. In fact, to the contrary, everything about him would scream, you want to be umpire? Or do you want to be like the water guy? And here's why. The text goes out of its way. The author repeatedly zeroes in on the few characteristics of Ehud. Look at how he's introduced in verse 15. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, my name is Benjamin, so I happen to know this. But in Hebrew, Benjamin is ben Yamin, and it means son of my right hand or son of strength. Right-handed people in the ancient world were seen kind of like today we have that phrase, tall, dark, and handsome or something like that. It's like the people who have it made, like life just unrolls in front of them like a red carpet. They, they're born with a silver spoon in their mouth. That was the right-handed. Even in the Bible, you see that reflected. The Lord Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, right? Say it in the Apostles' Creed. There's pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. God raises up his right hand of deliverance throughout the Psalms. Right was best. It was strongest. It was secure. It was blessed. Left was seen symbolically as the opposite of all of that. So Ehud is already the card stacked against him. Ehud's not like the others, but he's also from the tribe of Benjamin. So literally, he is a left-hander from a tribe of right-handers. So Ehud is the runt of the litter. Ehud is the one who stands out for all the wrong reasons, all the bad reasons. Ehud's been getting attention his whole life, and that is who God picked. 
Literally, the language suggests there, he, it, it doesn't say he was left-handed. It said he was unable to use his right hand. Maybe deformed, maybe paralyzed, maybe something else going on, but couldn't use his right hand. That's why he was left-handed. He's less than the rest. And yet God has chosen this man of all the others. And the only thing that makes Ehud special actually is the fact that God raises him up. That's all he's got going for him and nothing else other than that. No natural abilities. People look at him and see no potential in a dead end existence. And this is God's continual preference. You know this if you know anything about the gospel, if you know anything about the Bible. This is what God always does. He always chooses the runt of the litter to perform his mighty deeds through. He always chooses the leader with the limp, the weak one, the left out one, the ostracized one, the Joseph, the David, the Jesus, the Moses. Not the elites, not the self-made, not the well-educated, but it's the Ehuds that he always Works And the reason he does that is, number one, he's not prejudicial like you and I are. We size people up with lightning speed. You walk into this room and immediately we're sizing each other up. Are you above me on the pecking order or below me? God doesn't do that. He shows no favoritism. He has no partiality. And in fact, you could say if he does have any partiality, it's actually to preference the poor, the weak, the shut out, the hungry, the left out. The people that you're expecting nothing from is who he loves to work through. And that's Ehud. But it's also because he does this, he tells us to remove all room for boasting. If God had raised up a deliverer for Israel, that was kind of like, you know, braveheart incarnate, a natural born leader, you know, completely ripped military hero. And everybody's following this guy who... Who is followed? Is Israel in a better position after that or a worse one? If God used the strong, sexy Hollywood saviors in your life and you now bow down and worship those things, that therapist, that book, that friend, that mentor, who do you spend your life bowing down to and giving your life away to and worshiping? The one you were made for or something beneath that, someone beneath that? God saves in a way that removes all room for boasting, all room for credit, save himself, except for himself. And and beyond that, it's specifically Ehud's left-handedness that God uses to break the back of this evil, wicked, Moabite oppressor, this tyrant, this Saddam Hussein kind of figure. It's not just the runt of the litter, but it's the left hand of the runt of the litter. The Achilles hill of the weakest guy on the team, the weakest of the weak links. Evidence from the story. Let's just track through this real quick and pick up the details. When you've been oppressed in the ancient world, there's a deal that you got to sign or you lose your life. And the deal is you pay us. It's called a tribute. So every year you got to bring your nation's tribute. It takes a lot of people to carry it. That's why the text says there's a lot of people with Ehud. It took that many people to carry all that gold to bring to Eglon. Eglon, uh, the text is not body shaming Eglon or fat shaming Eglon. It's, it's to push home the point. How did he get so chunky? Their money, their food. He is prospering on their backs. 
through this tribute, this slave tax. You have to pay us to be our slaves. So that's why Ehud is going to his, his, um, the headquarters of the Moabites. And on his way back, or actually on his way there, he has this plan. If I get the opportunity, I'm going to kill this king. He has this sense of call. God has called me to finish what Joshua was called to do, what Israel was called to do and never did, to cleanse the land of evil, to purge the land of all that was contrary to God. So he said, I'm going to pick up that mantle because this is what God has called me to do. And so what he does, he's a left-hander. He straps this dagger about that long onto his right thigh underneath his robe. On his way back, after having this interaction with the king, giving him all the money, he's on the way back home. And he's like, this is my way. And I'm going to go back to the king's chambers. I'm going to tell him that I have a special message from my, uh, for you. And so he turns back around. He comes and he says that to the king. And for, for reasons that will become evident in just a minute, the king lets him in. And this is shocking. When is the president of the United States left alone in the White House with a terrorist or an enemy combatant? Ehud to Eglon would in every sense of the word be seen as a threat. This is the president of the U.S. meeting with the head of the Taliban or something like that. These are not people who just get along. So how in the world can you come to this guy and say, hey, I got a message. And the king says to his secret service, hey, everybody out. The only explanation for that is that nobody saw runt little Ehud as a threat. Nobody saw him as a danger. Look at this little guy. What is he going to do to the king? So the king says, get out. Leave me alone with this guy. And he's on this upper chamber in, in the Hebrew. That it's a room. It's some kind of intimate chamber, living quarters of the king that has a bathroom in it. We'll see in a minute. And so Ehud goes back in there. And he says, I got a message from God and Ehud or Eglon gets up. He kind of takes a while to get himself off his feet and he goes in to lean in to the message. And Ehud shoves this foot long dagger through the king and his bowels empty as he dies on top of his toilet. We'll pause there for just a moment and pick the story back up in a second. But I want you to think about something because I said, why is this in our Bible and what's it matter to you? What do all these details matter to you other than to entertain us? God will often specifically use your Achilles heel to bring deliverance through you or in you. He doesn't need to use the strong parts of you, the sexy parts of you, the well-honed and well-developed parts of you, the, the sharp intellect, the great personality. It'll usually be your weakest places and some of your weakest friends, your weakest moments in life, your weakest seasons, your embarrassingly weak seasons, deformed places in your life. He will show up there and he will act and he will deliver in those places. So the question to us in this moment is, do you only have eyes for right handed deliverance, Hollywood salvation? Where the knight in shining armor, are your prayers only looking for that knight in shining armor to deliver you out of whatever distress you're in, whatever pitch you're in, whatever place of poverty that we are in? Are you looking for an Otniel or a Saul or the fifth armored division to come and deliver you from the places that you're stuck? 
Must God right now in one failed swoop deliver you from the presence of every lust and every temptation to look at porn? Is that how you have narrowly defined him caring for you, delivering you, protecting you? It's got to be that way. It's got to be, I pray Tuesday night and by Wednesday morning, I'm a new man or a new woman. Do you have a monolithic, one-dimensional idea of what deliverance looks like? Or might God use your left-handedness, your weakness, you being 19 and hormones raging, you being at the end of your rope and thoroughly convinced that you can't save yourself, thoroughly convinced that you can't change yourself. Could he be using that Achilles heel, that left-handedness, even your struggles with sin, to bring a real and a true deliverance, not from a nuisance habit, but from fatal idolatry? I'd say so. As you cry out of the distress of just being broken up with or breaking up with another, is the only way you can imagine deliverance from this moment you're in is the vindication of the next person they date dumps them and you get vindication. Everybody sees it the way you do now. Does it have to be that way for God to answer your prayers and deliver you? Must it be emotional peace right now? Or could God use this tender place that you're at at this moment with all the pain, the legitimate pain that you're in? Could he be using this to shape you in ways that have never happened before? To make you like a child who trusts him in one of the deepest desires of your life? To make you a more loving person, perhaps even a more lovable person, a softer person, easier to relate to? We have a way in our minds of getting to this place of saying to God, whether we verbalize it or not, you're not doing it the right way, God, right? Or I wouldn't do it that way. There is a story I heard from another campus minister about a plumber who had come over to his house and um, he's watching the plumber fixing some leaks he'd called him to repair. And he's watching this guy and he's like, oh, interesting. That's not the way I would have done it. The plumber looks at him and says, that's because you don't know what you're talking about. As we either verbally or just through our emotions say to God or have a posture towards God of you're doing it wrong or what are you doing or that's not how I would do it. Are you able to hear him say in love, son, daughter, that's because you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing, but I do. Can you hear those words from God? The second and third things we're going to talk about tonight kind of flow together. So God uses these unlikely deliverers. And even in your life, he will use the unlikely places as an entry door to bring deliverance, to push you more like Jesus, to change you. So he uses those particular people. But what are these enemies? Who are these oppressors to begin with? In this situation, it's easy. He has a name. He has a position. He has a a castle or whatever. Eglon, king of the Moabites. I don't know if you've heard the metaphor behind what this sermon is titled, the emperor with no clothes. You familiar with that phrase? When people say the emperor has no clothes? It's an old Danish fairy tale for children. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen wrote it about 100 years ago. And it basically, I'm going to butcher the story, but try to make it like 15 seconds. There's these two weavers and they go and they tell the emperor, we have developed this fascinating, unprecedented fabric. It is so high quality and so expensive that it's invisible. People who are not enlightened or elite can't even see it. Only those who have arrived who kind of in the inner ring, only those people can see it and appreciate it. Everybody else 
won't even see what it is. And so he's like, tell me more about this. I want to hear about this. So they go and they make this cloth. They go and make this fabric, these clothes for the emperor. And they bring him to him and they disrobe him from his other clothes. And they robe him in this new outfit. And everybody in the whole, the whole city knows that only the enlightened, only the educated, only the upper crust can see this. And so everybody's like, I love your new clothes because you're immediate in the upper crust. Until one day, this little boy in the crowd says, but the emperor has no clothes on. This little boy lets the cat out of the bag and says what everybody knew except the emperor. You've been naked this whole time. You've looked like a fool this whole time. The emperor has no clothes and never has. Who are your enemies? Who are Ehud's enemies and Israel's enemies? Not just Eglon. He's the dumb, clumsy one that it's easy to see. But there's this interesting side comment made two times. It bookends the action, the story in this passage, verse 19. And when Ehud reached the stone idols, the Pesalim near Gilgal, and then on his way home after committing the act, verse 26, while the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols, the Pesalim, on his way to Sarah. What is happening here and why is this whole account bookended this particular way? Don't forget, who have God's people been worshiping for 18 years? The Pesalim. The idols. Amazon. Your favorite brand clothing. An amount of money. A particular status of internship. A particular friend group. Particular body shape. Particular level of intellect. That's who they'd been worshiping. God is contrasting in this moment a real life, just happened encounter of deliverance from a weak little runt of a powerful king. And he is intentionally parading his people right before these false idols. And he's saying, look at them stand there and do nothing. I was thinking a couple of weeks when we were talking about this idolatry Idols are like pimps. It's in the genre of love, you would think. You know, you're like, okay, sex, love, intimacy, I get it. But everybody in that knows absolutely nothing to do with love here. It's about power and it's about control. They're great at enticing you and getting you into things and horrible at delivering you out of things. Terrible at protecting you and providing for you. Great at enslaving you. That's an idol. And God is showing these idols utterly embarrassingly impotent as his deliverer walks past him with the blood of their king on his hands as a victor and a deliverer of his people. And the irony is palpable that the people simply cried out to the Lord and he raises up this runt who goes and topples all of these idols that they had literally been sacrificing their babies to for decades. We're supposed to get the irony of that too. Our idols do nothing for us except enslave us and use us and peddle us. But when it comes time to actually deliver you, release you, free you, enliven you, change you. I would say they sit there and watch us, but they can't even watch. They just sit there like that brick pillar. They're not real. They have no power. That's the contrast that is going on here. And God is not saying, rubbing his face in that and saying, hey, people, Ehud doesn't give a sermon. Hey, Israel, you see the Pesalim here? What good are they for you now? He didn't even talk to them. 
you get the irony, right? You get the comparison. God has delivered his people in compassion and in mercy and in grace and in power. And the lesson speaks for itself. The compare and contrast between the things that you and I lay our lives down running after and him proves itself. What are these emperors in your lives, friends? Theologians cluster them in three categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a whole other talk to unpack that. There's a lot to talk about there. But it's basically saying there's a power out there, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the culture. There's a devil. There's a, there is one, there's a ringleader of all that is bad and evil and broken in the world. And somehow it got inside of us in my wants and my hates and my thoughts, the flesh. And saying those are your enemies, Christian or not, no matter who you are, those are your enemies. If you put those under a microscope, you might see things like this, a verbally abusive parent who ridicules your faith every holiday you go home. Either maliciously or just with a dismissive giggle. Oh, that's cute. You believe in God. You'll grow up one day. That's an emperor with no clothes. Cultural authorities that imagine themselves to be Moses on Sinai issuing pluralistic dictates that you dare not transgress or you will be stoned. That is an emperor with no clothes. It could be a business culture that scoffs at the idea of Sabbath and rest and vacation. And it says, oh, how cute little college grad you think you get. You actually get to take your two weeks vacation. Well, if you do that, you can legally do that, but you'll never progress in this field. An emperor with no clothes. Your own sinful flesh saying, mocking you, ridiculing you. Why bother fighting this anymore? You've always overeaten. You'll continue to overeat. Just enjoy it and just give in to it. Those are your enemies, friends. And they are all emperors without clothes. And God does not just defeat these enemies of yours. He mocks them. He curb stomps them. He walks over them triumphantly. He destroys them because he's angry at them because he loves you. Colossians 2, 14, Paul says that God canceled the record of the charges against you and took them away by nailing them to the cross. Listen, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual authorities and he shamed them publicly, parading them as captives by his victory over them on the cross. He shames your enemies. The way a triumphant king back in the day would have all of his enemies shackled and put on wagons and dragged through town to show everybody who the real king was. That is what God will do to the enemies of his people. He will take names and he will seek vengeance against the flesh, against the devil, and against the world that is opposed to him. Do you see love in this? Do you see the father who, though he hates that his son picked the fight with the wrong crowd, still goes to the school and makes sure that fight never happens again? And he puts the fear of God into those people. This is how God thinks of his people. He loves you. He will not share you. He will not tolerate sharing his people. And he will not let the threats to his people walk away unengaged. God is jealous for his people and the worst place you could ever be is between God and his own. Jesus says, you cause one of my little ones to stumble. It is better that you had a millstone, like a big old olive press stone tied around your neck and thrown into the heart of the ocean 
than to cross one of my little ones and to make them sin. He takes it oh so seriously. The temptations raging in your heart, he takes their names and he's going to go after them. The worldly powers arrayed against his church, he takes names and he's either going to convert them and subdue them through his grace or he will subdue them through his justice. But he is king. This is no emperor without clothes, but this is the true king and that's where we end tonight there. I told you before, there's one hero and judges, just one. And it is in the process of delivering us that he becomes covered in all this stuff that Ehud becomes covered in. And this is what you lose in the English translation. But there's wordplay going on when it says he shoved the dagger into Eglon and it says the poop came out. Then it says, and Ehud came out of the toilet. Parallel language of what comes out of Eglon and what comes out of Eglon's toilet. And it's Ehud. So imagine how Ehud leaves his redemptive act, delivering Israel. He is literally covered in the mess of his opponent. There's a story from a couple of years ago in Arizona. When we lived out west, we heard about this. Uh, There was a mom and a daughter walking through a field. The daughter, there was a septic tank lit about that big on it. She stepped on it. It was loose, and so it flipped, and she fell in. There was a guy nearby, Henry Ricketts, 28-year-old, who saw this happen, heard the mother screaming, runs over to the septic tank lid, takes off his clothes, jumps in after her with no hesitation, they said, can't find her, takes a breath, goes under, finds her, drags her out. They do CPR and resuscitate her. Henry Ricketts was covered in that stuff because that's where she fell and he was going to get her out. Ehud is covered in this stuff because that's where Israel was and he was going to get him out by the command of the Lord. Jesus is covered in this stuff in a cosmic way that blows both of those infinitely out of the water. He's covered in this. He's covered in you. He's covered in me. As he walks away from delivering his people once and for all from idolatry, from your waywardness, from your sin, from your temptations, from the pits you get in, from worldliness, from the captivity and the slavery of the devil, from death itself. He is a hands-on, intimate Savior who gets covered in all of our mess just to deliver us. And he is a left-handed Savior. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, there is nothing when you look at Jesus, there is nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing that you would look to him and say, that's attractive. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. And yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion and crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Friends, this is the left-handed, unlikely Savior that God has provided to deliver you. And my question for you as we end is, do you scoff at him and say, he's not fit for the job? He's a runt. He's not a Hollywood Savior. Or do you see him as the God-provided deliverer for you and all that you need deliverance from? Jesus says what Ehud said in verse 28, because this passage is all about Jesus and just a little bit about Ehud. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. And he says to you, follow me. 
for the Lord has given me victory over your enemies, over all these emperors without clothes that pretend to be your kings. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, come and be king. Come and deliver us. And, and in, a, in a first encounter kind of a way for those of us dead in our sins, dead to you, enslaved and captive, but deliver those of us like Israel, who though delivered once, kept walking away right back into the jail cell, unsure of how to live in freedom. Come as a king and free us. Come as a king and empower us. Come as a king and deliver us. We pray in your holy name. Amen.